Welcome to the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. In this series, we'll bring you 12 of the best talks from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime. This episode is called COVID-19 and Organised Crime. Welcome, everyone. Uh, this panel is titled COVID-19 um, and Organised Crime. Uh, my name is Anna Laskai. Um, I'm Assistant Professor of Criminology at Utrecht University, and I have the pleasure of moderating this panel today, in which we'll be seeing three presentations discussing organized criminality and with a specific focus on how COVID-19 has affected means, motives, and opportunity structures of groups, as well as the types of criminality that may flourish during the global pandemic or within a global crisis. Um, before I introduce the speakers of the first presentation, um, let me just briefly reiterate some technical rules of engagement. So please mute your microphones um, when you are not presenting or not speaking. Um, presentations will be a maximum of about 15 minutes and I will uh, let you know when you're at the 10 minute mark so that you can begin um, wrapping up your presentations. Um, and the presentations will take place after each other. Um, at the end of all three, I'll open the floor to questions from the participa participants. Um, as such, during the presentation, please take note of your questions, make use of the chat, uh, place the questions in there, and then I will be posing these um, to our presenters at the end of all the presentations. Um, so without further ado, um, I would like to introduce the first presenters. Uh, we are joined today by Mr. Stephen Asade Abanhua and Mr. King Carl Kornam Duo, uh, economists and policy analysts from Data King Research Lab um, and Data King Consulting from Accra, Ghana. Um, Stephen and King Carl, welcome. Uh, the floor is yours. Hi to everyone. I'm Stephen Asade Abanhua and and our focus is on the impact of COVID-19 on organized crime in Ghana and insights for post-pandemic context. This is the outline of our presentation. First off, we'll look at the motivation, the literary view. We'll explore policies on organized crime in Ghana. We'll look at organized crime and COVID marriage, ter terrorist expansion in the sub-region, policy loopholes, how to integrate regional and global stances into national policy stances, and then conclusion and recommendation. First off, the twin issues of terrorism and organized crime are becoming entrenched across Africa. And given the US UNODC, I mean, GetTalk um, report about criminality scores within Africa, what we do find is that 48% of countries in the region have high criminality scores, greater than 5.0, indicating there's high prevalence of criminal markets and high scale and scope of criminal activities. For Ghana's criminality score, we do find that it's around 6.04, which shows that it's highly affected uh, by the activities of organized criminal groups. Now, that is also conjoined with the fact that in 2020, Ghana went to the polls, and this was amid the second wave of the COVID-19, and reports came out that Ghana, uh, the elections, election campaigns were fueled with illicit financing sources. Again, typical with the COVID-19 crisis situation, we do also find that organized criminal groups were able to undergo some mutations where um, the, due to the disruptions of COVID-19, the stay-at-home measures and mobility restrictions meant that it disrupted businesses. And so therefore businesses were supposed to then um, swift, swiftly move away from the 
traditional ways of doing business into other means. Again, organized criminal groups were able to then reroute their networks so that they maneuver the challenges that the COVID-19 pandemic had posed on their activities. Catching up on these new challenges, um, and of course, with regards to the threats of terror activities, what it means is that the government is supposed to look at organized criminal activities and how to clamp down on them holistically and identify the policy loopholes and regulatory loopholes that, um, that are within uh, the system in order to clamp down on organized criminal activities in the country. There are a number of theories that seek to identify and elaborate for us what organized criminal activities, what are the motivations really for organized criminal activities. And the individual and structural strain theory uh, says that there may be some negative feelings and stress or anger that may fuel or motivate individuals or contribute to their involvement in organized criminal activity, especially in, in issues or cases where there are crises, right? And there's also the strain of, of theory, which also says that there's an opportunity and routine activity. That is when day-to-day -day movements of people are curtailed due to the um, uh, lockdown measures that were put in place. What it means is that individuals are not able to, those who are involved in organized criminal activities are not able to go about their normal activities. And so it tends to reduce or contribute less to um, the, the number of, or frequency of um, organized criminal activities occurring in the country. For the first theory, it means that given that people are faced with crisis situations and it leads to stress, negative influences and anger, then it means that it will fuel their involvement in organized criminal activities, which is, which is to them uh, going to impact positively um, on, on them whilst they involve themselves in, 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 in that um, activity. But for the other one, which is the opportunity and routine activity theory, it means that given the lockdown measures, um, it would rather reduce organized criminal activities. We, don't, we then now move on to exploring policies in Ghana, um, which regarding organized crime uh, as well. For our national policies, um, what we do find is that they are mainly born out from the international conventions and treaties and agreements, as well as the regional agreements that have been uh, signed and ratified um, in Ghana. But what we, all, what we do also find is that the, these policies um, in fighting organized criminal activities are rather skewed hugely towards law enforcement, that is strengthening law and order. The most important thing that we need to note about our policies in Ghana is that in 2010, the government established the EOCO, which is the Economic um, Office of Organized, I mean, Crime Office, where uh, it, was, it was established such that it would prevent and detect organized crime and also confiscate proceeds of crime. In 2020, the, and in 2019 and 2020, the government was placed, or Ghana was placed under um, the FATF Bill list, which pointed out that the policies regarding anti-money laundering and, 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 and CF, CTL were, were loose. And so it meant that individuals were able to use these loopholes to involve themselves in, I mean, this, um, in money laundering and, and what have you. But in that same year, in 2020, due to that great, um, I mean, that occurrence, the government introduced some regulatory um, frameworks and then some policies to be able to uh, remove or get Ghana off that list. So in 2020, the government um, amended the AML Act of 2008. And then also it introduced a national anti-money laundering and countering the financing ter terrorism policy between 2019 and 2022. And they also revised some guidelines um, for 
banks and non-bank financial institutions to be able to I mean, clamp down on this menace. Also, it's also interesting to note that in 2022, the government launched um, a national control, a drug control master plan as a framework to control the, the occurrence or, or the use of or, or trafficking of, of, of drug within the country, which is something laudable to, to note. Now, with regards to organized crime and then COVID, we know that Ghana, I mean, for from time immemorial, has been um, touted as a country that is has a stable democracy. But Ghana is no saint when it comes to, I mean, organized criminal activities or the, the frequency of of occurrence of, of organized crime. Now, in, in the COVID nineteen period, what we did, we did find is that statistics show that drug um, human trafficking and the sales of illicit drugs increased. By, by about 133% and 100% respectively between 2019 and 2020. And again, during the COVID, COVID period, um, due to lockdown measures that were imposed within the urban centers, that is specifically Accra and then Kumase, what we did find was that, of course, uh, crime increased. And this is something that has always been the case for these urban cities. Now, the pandemic drove consumers to, instead of seeking for um, then traditional use of 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 of, of, of doing business, they rather sought to contract transactions using, I mean, online means and all that. And what it meant was that ATM and and point of sales related fraud increased by about five hundred forty eight percent year over year. That is between twenty nineteen and twenty twenty, which is a significant, um, I mean, percentage regarding uh, the occurrence of this uh, fraud fraudulent activities. And so the theory which says that, I mean, due to lockdown measures, it would reduce the, the speed of the organized criminal activities occurring. It wasn't the case, rather. What we did see is that individuals were moved from those traditional means into the use of online means to, to conduct their, their illicit activities. During the pandemic, as well as I said earlier, um, the COVID-19 pandemic was also coupled with the 2020 elections. And what we did see is that during that period, Individuals or, I mean, groups that are involved in organized criminal activities were, um, they were involved in philanthropic activities because the vulnerable who were not able to cater for themselves um, became poor, of course. So people, these people shared foods around to be able to help these, um, these others. And what it meant was that it was a means of eroding the state of power in the local level. That is, traditional rulers and leaders are now not able to talk as much as possible, um, or we don't even see their involvement when it comes to Ill, um, illegal mining, which has become a menace in the country. Terrorist expansion also, I mean, increased during the period. And UNODC has said that close to half of the world's terror activities occur in Africa. And most of these uh, terrorist groups, main, mainly Boko Haram and others, which have moved from the Sahara region. Um, have gotten into West Africa. And these are causing some kind of panic and threats uh, within the region. We have seen that Burkina Faso has recorded some number of terrorist um, threats. I've also seen that Togo has been, um, has been affected as well. And then there are also, I mean, people saying that Ghana could be the next. And in fact, um, there are reports that indicate that there are jihadists that have already um, moved into Ghana. And so uh, the government is supposed to move in quickly to be able to curb this menace. Again, UNODC noted that illegally uh, mined gold and other precious metals are fueling violent crimes, violent uh, criminal activities. And these are and th these are sources of income for these, for these uh, people and groups. 
And Ghana being um, involved in mining and being, uh, uh, I mean, being able to produce gold in large quantities. And of course, having the issue of illegal mining being a, 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 a real canker in the country, it means that these people may move in and, I mean, be involved in this to fuel the, the financing of the activities. And so the government is supposed to also look into that as well. Now, there are some policy loopholes in addressing organized crime. For Uganda's policies regarding organized crime, what we do find is that they are really linked with other core support areas. And they, they are merely emphasizing just the, the law enforcement agenda, right? Strengthening law and order in the country and, and advancing security mainly. But what um, Enact Africa's Resilience Index report says about Ghana is that uh, given the, 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 the report, the resilience mechanisms that it used as an index, it's Ghana's resilience, resilience core reduced to 0.08. And given the 12 indices that he used, four of them showed a negative um, improvement, four of them showed no change at all, and then four of them showed some marginal improvement. Now, there's also some level of policy incoherence and lack of coordination among the implementing agencies in Ghana involved to control the menace. And there are also some accountability and transparency um, uh, measures which are not very robust. And so these um, organized criminal groups and illicit trade and all that do happen. And, and especially this is found um, in the areas of the electoral, electoral financing or electoral campaigns. And as I said earlier, it was, it was mentioned during the 2020 elections. There's also policy, policy response are also nearly knee-jerk, um, especially when you do find the illegal mining activities, what the government has done so far regarding fighting it. During 2017, the government sought to do that. But so now we still have this as a great menace and it's been a very big uh, headache for, for the government and then the president as, as, as a person. Um, and also corruption has also been on the, on the increase, even though res policy responses have been, um, I mean, done to be able to curb it. They have only been uh, immediate and not really structured to be able to solve this menace. Again, what we did seek to do is that we adopted the use of the policy outcome indicator of the Office of the Auditor General and Minister of Justice to be able to help us know what, for the government, what it seeks, what, what it, um, it sees about its fight against, uh, against organized criminal activities in the country. And we used the IOKU, which is the agency given the full mandate to do that. And doing an analysis, what we did, we did find is that uh, from, from the graph that, I mean, the graph you see, there, we used the percentage of cases investigated by Yoko and, and, and then the, as against the total number of cases they received, and then the percentage of cases they prosecuted. And when you look at the, the, date, the uh, graph here, you see that from 2018 to 2020, 21, we saw a huge decrease of um, the percentage of cases investigated by Yoko from 60% to 42%, a massive decrease. And then again, when you look at the percentage of cases prosecuted by Yoko, we found a massive decrease from 2018, which is 66.7% to 42.2% in 2021, telling us that there has been some effect of the COVID-19 on, on, on the activities, on the fact that policies have been loose, regulatory measures have been loose, implementation has been very, very loose within that period. And of course, because of the, um, the move of these organized criminal groups onto the um, online markets, it means that they, they are, they are well-resolved to be able to curb this menace is also uh, suspect. 
Now, integrating regional and global stances into national policy stances. We also do realize that Ghana, as I said earlier, I mean, looks at the, the global and regional conventions and treaties and, and I mean, draws its policies from, from, from that. But again, it's also worth it to note that global initiatives that were previously dominating the responses to organized criminal activities are now taking the backstage. Now, what we do find is that regional initiatives are beginning to take center stage. And, and that is what Banfield says. Um, but of course, given the rising political uncertainties and the fact that there's deglobalization, um, countries more and more are seeking to tilt towards going solo instead of, I mean, looking at and, and sacrificing um, multilateral cooperation with other, with other bodies and countries. But of course, to be able to integrate regional and global stances, international political stances, what it means is that since there's a transnational dynamics to organized crime, um, we should look at this problem as a globally localized problem so that we, we tailor policies in that direction. So there's a need for increased multilateral cooperation, unlike uh, the, the case, the, the, other, the, the other case, which seeks to mean that governments will only look at them, look inward and only um, amongst their own counterparts in their regions to, to look at solving this menace. There's supposed to be increased multilateral cooperation, which is dwindling as time goes on. And that is the case also with Ghana, especially um, with the comprehensive national drug control that it, it, it launched. Um, it, it came by from the um, ECOWAS that, that really helped brought the initiative up and, and supported the government to be able to do this. Of course, um, the multilateral corporations were on the, at the background, but that is what we saw. But to be able to solve this issue, there's supposed to be increased multilateral cooperation, of course, um, not, notwithstanding the regional corporations also being um, important. Now, let's focus yeah, on the- I'm sorry, you have one more minute. Right. So we see that from what we've discussed, there are increased threats of terrorism and illicit networks that are occurring within Ghana. And of course, these organized criminal groups have shifted their focus um, into the region and particularly to the country. What the government needs to do is that they should, given the increased political will, um, in committing to re reducing this menace. The government should also correct institutional constraints, which are human, financial, and logistically induced. The first thing to do is that the government should develop a comprehensive national master control and plan to address the different forms of organized criminal activities in Ghana. Again, there should be closing, uh, the government should also prioritize closing the gaps in existing policies um, regarding organized criminal activities and its, um, the convergence it has with crisis situations. Uh, policy coherence and coordination should also be uh, of priority to the government. Again, you see that there's also a death in data on crime, which therefore does not allow the government to fully respond to organized criminal activities occurring in the country. And so there's need for more research and data to be able to help the government do some uh, complete review of policies and formulation of policies to guide um, its planning and, and address wholly organized criminal activities in the country. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stephen and King Carl. Uh, very extensive um, presentation with a number of subjects, which I'm sure um, will give a lot of opportunity for discussion um, at the end of this. Um, for now, I'd like to move on to our, the second presentation. Um, 
This is a study by Marco Dugato and Cosimo Sidotti. Today we have Cosimo here, um, researcher at the Transcrime Research Center, um, as well as works at the Università Cattolica del Sacro Cuore. Um, Cosimo, the floor is yours. Hi, everyone. So today I'm going to talk about uh, the, the research that I carried out with, uh, together with my colleague Marco Dugato. Uh, our research, uh, talking about our research uh, um, called Organized Theft of Medicines, Emerging Trends and Criminal Schemes. So uh, the first uh, issue that we encounter uh, about this topic is the one about definition. So what is exactly uh, theft of medicines? Uh, and um, so uh, we want a definition basically that focused more on serious and um, and organized criminal events rather than uh, petty offenses, uh, such as, for instance, uh, individuals going to uh, steal medicines in uh, pharmacy shops because of personal usage. So we opted for the following uh, definition. Theft of medicines refers to any legal taking of medicines or medical devices usually perpetrated by organized criminal groups or networks and in which the aim of the criminals is either to reintroduce illicitly stolen products into the legal supply chain or to sell them on the black market. So uh, why it is relevant uh, today to have medicines? Um, so what we know is that medicines are an appealing target with low risk and high returns. This is because of the specific uh, characteristics of medicines that are low of um, volume and weight, but at the same time have high commercial value. And this is uh, the case for specific uh, medicines, uh, for instance, those to treat uh, um, severe diseases such as cancer medicines, but also for some medical devices, for instance, um, endoscopes or optic uh, medical instruments. Um, then uh, we know that uh, theft of medicines has huge impacts in terms of uh, uh, economic impacts, so here, for instance, from this um, graphic, from this data from the Transporter Association, we can see that the percentage of, uh, um, of pharmaceutical theft with a value of more than um, of 100,000 or more is, um, is quite bigger than compared to, um, compared to the... Um, the major thefts of, uh, of other products um, in proportion to the total number of cargo, cargo crimes. So when we talk about theft of medicines here, we are talking about major, mostly major crimes with a huge economic impact. Uh, however, another uh, relevant impact is certainly about obviously the, the public health, um, uh, the health of citizens. So. Um, another uh, relevant aspect is that theft of medicines are usually largely underreported or misreported. So we don't have much information about that. And usually theft of medicines are reported as just generic, uh, generic um, theft. Uh, and uh, for instance, here from, from the data of the Pharmaceutical Security Institute, we can see that at first glance, uh, theft of medicines is a minor issue with very low percentages. Uh, however, um, very interesting here is um, 
the percentage about the diversion cases that actually account for the most reported pharmaceutical uh, crime events. And this means, it is interesting because this means that uh, actually diverted products are most likely to be generated from some sort of uh, fraud or theft. So this means that the high number of diversion cases could entail a high number of unreported theft of medicines. So diversion cases are an, an additional indication of the number of theft, theft of medicines. And lastly, uh, another very much relevant uh, relevance is about the uh, consequences of the COVID-19 um, and also most recently the, the, the war in Ukraine and, um, and the sanctions to, to Russia uh, because of obviously the, the generated, uh, because they generated new opportunities for criminals to boost even more for the, this, uh, this illegal market. Um, so um, in our research, what we do, basically uh, if all this, our research fall, falls within a broader, um, a broader project called the Meditheft, uh, that um, is a EU funded project, uh, where as researchers, our role was to collect and analyze information related to theft of medicines uh, with the aim of identifying and prevent uh, the modi operandi of criminals. Uh, and the ultimate end of this project uh, was to, to create um, a data sharing and investigative platform to combat organized theft of medicines at EU level um, to better so improve effective EU uh, law enforcement intervention. Um, in our, in our, so in our, um, in our identification of the criminals schemes, we uh, we used a variety of um, of sources uh, to collect data coming from databases from the provided by the Pharmaceutical Security Institute and TAPA Transported Asset Protection Association, but also the Italian Medicine Agency and Carabinieri. We carried out surveys administrated to to uh, drug uh, regulatory agencies in uh, in uh, several in most uh, EU uh, EU member states we carried out interviews with key experts in the private and public sector and we also analyzed um, more than a thousand records uh, among uh, press releases and journal articles and we uh, lastly analyzed also six official do documents on judicial cases about theft of medicines or medical devices in in Italy, um, so we um, in our analysis we identified specifically seven uh, criminal schemes, relying upon a strike, uh, crime script, script uh, analysis approach, and um, these criminal schemes are seven five uh, um, related to specifically medicines, and the last two about. Uh, medical devices. So the first one, and uh, probably the most common one, is international illicit traders. That is inspired about the the Operation Volcano um, case uh, in 2014 that occurred in in Italy. And um, this scheme are, uh, has the aim to steal large quantities of high-priced medicines, so uh, mostly cancer medicines, to re-enter them into the legal supply chain in other EU member states through uh, parallel trading. 
through parallel trading. However, this um, this uh, particular scheme uh, does not uh, occur much. Uh, it's not that common nowadays because of a higher traceability uh, of uh, of um, of medicines. And the more common today is actually the second scheme that we call suppliers where the aim is here is to steal low quantities of high-priced medicines on commission to export them in countries where these products are not available or not covered by the national health systems. And this scheme, uh, for instance, uh, was very common in North African countries as destination countries uh, where, uh, European, um, where, where European uh, medicines have, uh, um, are very much attractive. Um, then we have the, the, the third scheme that is about generalists with aim of stealing large or medium quantities of low priced medicines or common medical devices to furnish, to furnish local pharmacies or private uh, medical facilities. Here, the, the main actors are usually um, conniving professionals that uh, coordinate all these organizations and um, and at the same time, they, they are the same to furnish their own local pharmacies. And uh, it is so uh, compared to the previous uh, two, it has a much more local uh, type of market. Then uh, we have the recyclers uh, that is uh, quite less common uh, and it, it is about counterfeiting. So the aim here is to still expire medicines or pharmaceutical ways to provide organization of counterfeiters with samples or materials about new or highly requested products. And here we, we saw some cases, for instance, in north of Italy, where thieves where thieves were stealing uh, outside um, from the waste disposal of medicines outside hospitals or pharmacies. Uh, then we have the, the dealer's uh, uh, scheme about stealing pro medical products that could be used in illicit or recreational activities to sell them on the black market. So here we are talking, for instance, about um, anabolic, anabolic steroids, so in gyms uh, or sex shops and stuff like that. And then uh, the last two are about uh, medical devices. So here we have the technicians scheme that is about stealing uh, high-priced medical devices or equipment and sell them abroad either on the, uh, on the black market or on the secondary market. And here we saw, uh, for instance, a case involving um, a gang outside Europe uh, coming into Europe to steal specifically um, endoscopes and bring them back to their own country to sell them either on the black market yeah, or, or as uh, secondary items. Then we have the last scheme that is the one that um, is the most uh, is the most current probably because it, it involves uh, COVID-19 especially, uh, where the aim is to steal large amounts of low-priced medical devices with a wide demand in the general public to sell them either on the black market or to conniving or unwitting uh, legal, legal businesses. And we saw these, uh, for instance, very attractive in this period where the, the face masks, for instance. Uh, so, um, in, in conclusion, we summarizing them the, um, after having uh, analyzed these criminal schemes, we uh, we could um, we could identify the, the main characteristics of theft of medicines. So, for instance, so uh, first of all, 
uh, theft of medicines is widespread and transnational. So even though there is a lack of available information, we know that theft of medicines and medical devices occur in most countries across Europe. And um, most of the criminal schemes are highlight the transnational nature of this crime, not only about, uh, not only considering where the countries, countries where uh, the, the medicines were stolen, uh, but also uh, where these medicines uh, um, were transited and, uh, and sold as well. Um, then um, we know, we also know that theft of medicines is a, com is a complex, complex crime. Uh, because it involves and connect a wide uh, range of activities, illicit activities uh, beyond the mere stealing of, uh, of the products. And the level of complexity varies according to the specific characteristics of the criminal schemes, uh, such as, for instance, the quantity and type of um, medicines of stolen products, uh, the economic profits generated, but also the cross-border nature of the trafficking of these of these products. Then we know the theft of medicines is an organized crime because to manage this complexity, criminals' activities tend to be decentralized to specific uh, functional units, uh, such as thieves, transporters, fences, and retailers. They are usually coordinated uh, by a management group um, in charge of brokering and coordinating the, the, the different actors. And especially in the case of major crimes, so yielding high profits, uh, these criminal organizations are highly entrepreneurial and extremely market-oriented. Then we know that theft of medicines is various and evolving. So they identify uh, criminal schemes, highlight how thieves can target different products, uh, relying rely on uh, different and various methods for stealing these products and also exploit several several channels to sell them both to witting uh, or unwitting clients and obviously this opens a wide range of opportunities for criminals operating in this uh, illicit market so to, uh, that allows them to target different uh, alternative products to target alternative products or places mainly based on opportunistic uh, opportunistic reasons. Then, uh, uh, as a last point, in conclusion, we know that theft of medicines is often facilitated by uh, conniving professionals. So these uh, criminal organizations rely heavily on conniving professionals or employees or brokers. Uh, along the pharmaceutical supply chain, and these are crucial um, actors in uh, most of the in most of the schemes uh, connecting uh, connecting the the, um, the criminal organizations to 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 the to the clients. So these uh, these actors take advantage of their uh, their occupations to steal and facilitate uh, the stealing of the products. And based also on their expertise, they also can establish whitewash mechanisms and broker um, and and also broker activities between uh, as, I, as i was saying before between criminals and clients in order to 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 sell these this stolen uh, products and um, third these actors can also help to set up a bogus company or uh, yeah shell companies and, yeah, yeah uh, i basically concluded uh, or also yeah 
to set up these bogus company or mediate with conniving ones to favor the, 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 the stealing. And um, that's pretty much it. And if you want to know more, we are going to release soon, uh, next week, uh, the, the, the report that we wrote about the theft of medicine in the EU. And uh, you can uh, email us or find the, the website or uh, on Twitter. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Cosimo. That was uh, quite enlightening. Um, and I'd like to encourage, I see a couple of questions already in the chat. Um, please keep them coming because we'll pose these at the end to um, all of the presenters and also individually. Um, for our final presentation, um, I would uh, like to welcome uh, Lorenzo Vertamati. Uh, he has an extensive and very international background when it comes to his studies, uh, studying international studies in The Hague, uh, looking specifically um, at Africa. Um, and then later within the Erasmus Plus program uh, with an international master in security, intelligence and strategic studies, he has conducted research um, in Glasgow, Dublin pr in, and Prague. And his interests um, lie now uh, with criminal groups and the interrelationship between security and society. Uh, so your master thesis um, focused on the effects of COVID-19 and organized criminal groups in Italy. Um, so Lorenzo, I would like to give you the floor for the final presentation. Thank you. Thank you. So yes, this is the this is the title of my presentation, which is also the title of my dissertation for the uh, University of Glasgow. As as you can see, I have a focus on the relationship between COVID-19 and Italian organized crime groups. So uh, I mainly focus on the three main ones. So Ndrangheta in Calabria, uh, Mafia in Sicily, and then in Campania, there's Camorra. Uh, so this is the structure of the presentation. I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview about research design and methodology. Uh, I'm going to talk about literature review, so where I got my ideas, especially for the variables that I used. And of course, then I'm going to mention the variables for uh, the relationship between COVID-19 and organized crime, uh, talk about the actual impact, which is the critical part of my presentation, and, and then I'm going to give out a bit of a conclusion. Thank you. So uh, this is just an idea about the research design and the methodologies that I've used. It is, uh, of course, an historical event research. So I took one event that goes on for two years. Arguably, it is still going on. Is it not going on? That's another, that's another kind of debate. Uh, but I did focus on the period between 2020 and July 2022, which is when I finished my research. Uh, I use 11 variables. Um, I did employ a critical approach to this to this uh, dissertation, and I wanted to do that especially, which is the main motivation also for uh, for my writing, uh, which is that I've noticed, especially doing research on this subject, that there's uh, a lot of bias and especially assumptions, in my opinion, from the academic world, especially, but also from uh, the general pub public regarding the actual impact of organized crime and its effect, in my opinion, especially in Italy. Uh, so I wanted to try and understand whether that was actually the case or, or it was uh, the product of a exaggerated bias and assumption. Uh, so I mainly used uh, secondary uh, sources, but also primary ones. It's a mixed method approach, uh, which is what I found most useful in this type of research. Uh, of course, 
uh, there are a lot of academic uh, articles among them, but I also went on databases by uh, the Italian police or the Italian government. That's the main ones, but there are also institutions in, uh, uh, in the EU and of course all around the world. Uh, the topic of the generalizations is, uh, is a hard one in this case because it's, there, there's a lot of debate about whether you can make generalizations regarding such a, such a big research. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't agree uh, with making them, and in my opinion, it's especially because of the country of focus. It's a case study in the end, and the country of focus is Italy which is an outlier, in my opinion, when you're talking about organized crime. So it wouldn't be too, too wise uh, for what concerns my, my thoughts uh, to generalize a situation like this one for the rest of the world. So yeah, uh, I identified the 11 variables that I use for the research using these, uh, these three uh, main points for the literature review. The first one is the relationship between organized crime and crisis around the world. So I had a look at the economic, political, and environmental crisis. I wanted to see how organized crimes and uh, organized crime groups and crisis uh, were uh, interrelated and how they were studied before, of course, if there were any points of contact that I could employ for my research as well. Uh, the second one, which is most important in my case, is the relationship between organized crime groups and crisis in Italy. So in particular, in this case, it was important for me to look at the uh, global financial crisis of 2007, 2008, uh, but also the political crisis of the 1990s in Italy, especially from 1992, uh, the environmental crisis. So for example, the earthquakes that, uh, uh, that, um, that were in Southern Italy, Central and Southern Italy in the eighties. And, and of course, migration with 2015 being the, being the point here. Uh, there is the last point, of course, is the relationship between organized crimes and COVID around the world. So uh, I wanted to look how that relationship was, uh, uh, was studied and, and what it entailed around the world to then bring it and see if I could bring back anything into Italy. Okay, so I started looking at the socio-political socio activities of uh, organized crime groups in Italy uh, during, during COVID. Uh, of course, I first looked at corruption, which increased by 94% uh, between 2020 and 2021. Uh, in, in the year prior, Italy also lost a spot in the Transparency International's Index uh, and is currently at the 52nd place which is not too, too bad, of course, but it's also not one of the best positions that uh, supposedly developed country, as we, we proud ourselves to, to, to call us, uh, should be. Um, so, of course, uh, I studied the exploitation and uh, redirection of police resources. In this case, it mainly uh, concerned prison. There is a 20% prison overpopulation in Italy, uh, and 10% and of the prison population was released. Uh, to, to alleviate the pressure from COVID, which is something that really uh, wasn't, um, that really wasn't useful in the end, uh, mainly because of the ways that these people, which were mainly convicted for mafia, uh, so organized crime uh, crimes, then uh, they used the house arrest that they were put into to call their associates or organize plans for uh, for robberies or uh, or to deal drugs or humans you know so uh, it was really it was really it had really a negative effect on the overall security of southern italy uh, there's a provision of the social support of course whereby these uh, groups actually created fake charities and they went around in southern italy uh, especially in poorer settlements giving out aid uh, to people so that they would be uh, in debt with them. 
uh, of course, there is the exploitation of the online sphere, uh, which is uh, socio-political, but it's also an economic issue. Uh, Facebook and Twitter have been used 70% more during the pandemic in Italy than before. And of course, uh, there is an increase in attacks, roughly 60% increase in attacks by malware and botnets on Italian servers. Uh, that is something that concerns also organized crime. Uh, there, there is a debate in, in this sense whether it is established organized, organized crime groups like Mafia or Camorra might be uh, undertake these attacks or it's actually uh, smaller, younger, more flexible uh, cells of, criminal, of criminals that, that uh, are independent from the bigger groups. So there is a debate about this. Thank you. So yeah, just touching briefly on the economic activities of organized uh, crime groups during COVID. Uh, the main one that we that we want to look at is the appropriation of public funds. Of course, there is the Next Generation EU fund, which was worth uh, 750 billion euros, and uh, 190 of them, uh, which is the highest number in Europe, were allocated to Italy, and uh, they are delivered. They will be delivered up until 2026, and they will be spread out. On, on six years, of course, 25 billion, so 13% 30, uh, was obtained immediately, uh, which gave, of course, a big, big chance uh, to organized crime groups in Italy, which already had an expertise in this, uh, in this field, uh, to take advantage of the situation. And I, I, I go back to the previous slide with corruption. Uh, of course, you, you have to put these two numbers together and try to understand the scale of the significance. Uh, you can see also there's a 4% increase of white collar crimes, um, which, which implied that they were still in uh, public funds, but they were all, also still in private ones. One of, the, one, of the, uh, one of their preferred ways to do this, for example, was, the, uh, was stealing uh, information, private information. So they were doing that from individuals, they were doing that from companies, and then they were making out orders for them or picking up, uh, picking up product that they had ordered previously. Uh, and that they could sell on the black market, you know, for a higher price or something like that. So another part of the of the economic activities, of course, is the infiltration of the economic system, which is something that I was talking about before. Uh, you have to um, you have to understand that uh, there is a large part of the Italian economy that already before the crisis was at risk of of being involved with, uh, with organized crime, roughly eleven percent was already in the hands of the mafia before. 10% uh, wasn't, but was at risk. So roughly 20% uh, already before COVID. Uh, this is something that of course increased afterwards. One of the uh, most interesting numbers in my opinion is the fact that 10% more, more companies were affected by anti-mafia interdicting measures, uh, which is something that we have in Italy since the 1990s and the political crisis that I was talking about before. Uh, to avoid uh, the capture of the Italian legal political uh, economic system by, by these groups. Uh, of course, the other really interesting number, in my opinion, is the fact that 60% uh, of Italian regions experienced increases in financial crimes during COVID. Um, one interesting fact is also where that happened, because most of the regions that, in, uh, that uh, experienced large increases in this sense were not in the South, as is traditionally expected, but they were in the north. In fact, the, the region that had the highest increase uh, percent in percentage was uh, was Trentino Alto Adige, which is uh, which is a region in northeastern Italy uh, that traditionally really has nothing to do with mafia. Uh, so it was really interesting for this. Of course, the 
last economic activity that that organized crime groups undertook uh, was usury uh, which is something that is well it's a, it's almost a tradition in italy let's say but from 2019 to 2020 uh, the practice increased uh, by 7.5%, which is a, a really, really high, high number. And, and um, that mainly happened because of the liquidity that was available to organized crime groups. So in a situation uh, where there was an economic crisis because of COVID and people didn't have access either to their savings or to banks, uh, in a lot of situations, because of their credit score, of course, uh, but a lot of in a lot of situations, uh, people turn to organized crime groups, even for uh, what is called daily usury. So uh, I, I borrow money in the morning and I give them back at night. Of course, that comes with higher interest rates that a lot of times touch 100 or 200 percent. So that's something definitely to be worried about, especially for the lower classes in, in Italian society. Uh, the third thing that I looked at was uh, trafficking and smuggling. Uh, of course, uh, first among the first among them is drug trafficking, which is something that has be, been practiced for a lot of years by by Italian organized crime groups. Uh, there is, is an increase in narcotic seizures from 2020 to 2021 uh, by 55 percent, and especially the previous year, cocaine increased by 60 percent, which is a really really high number. Uh, there is also uh, an increase in human trafficking. Uh, plus 50%, that is a number that was given uh, by the U.S. Embassy in Italy, actually. And, and there is an interesting uh, fact that is the, the number of migrants arriving to Europe from the Mediterranean route, uh, which is the one that leads to Italy, actually increased, uh, whereby the overall number of migrants decreased, but I'm, I'm going to talk about that later. Uh, and of course, there is the... There is the the trafficking and smuggling or counterfeits, but I think that Mr. Sidotti already talked uh, extensively about that. Now I wanted to touch a little bit on the impact, and uh, this is the critical part of my research, in my opinion. Uh, I wanted to do this, uh, and I wanted to touch on whether the impact was actually what the researchers experienced uh, for a very simple reason, and that is because um, I have experience, I've seen, as any other Italian has, uh, the effects that policies uh, prepared by a government that is not well informed uh, about certain issues and se securitizes certain issues uh, without the need to can actually have a negative effect on, on the government, on the population and on the overall security of the country. So um, just to give an example, I'm thinking of the security decree that was uh, established in 20, 2018, if I'm not wrong, against migrants. So yeah, that was that was a very big thing, and it brought like a lot of a lot of stress in Italy. Um, I did want to try and avoid that, and especially look at the bias of researchers when looking at this um, at this topic. But just starting off, I touched on the counterfeits, uh, which again, Mr. Sidoli talked about a lot. But counterfeits have been a priority for the European Union in the fight against organized crime since at least 2010, uh, arguably since 2013, when the first uh, when the first actual policy was was published against them and the first suggestions for uh, for member states were published. Uh, of course, there is the impact on the investments in the legal economy and the healthcare business. Uh, so I 
do agree that uh, corruption increased, of course, by 94%, and that's a high number, uh, but 500 billion were already lost annually to COVID, uh, before COVID-19 to organized crime. And in the end, we are 52nd in the, in the transparency index, uh, but we only, Italy only lost one spot, uh, which arguably can, can be said out of 193 that that is not such, such a bad deal in the end. Um, of course, even with the confiscation of properties, as I was talking about before, that is something that has been going on since the 1990s. Uh, there are billions uh, that have been confiscated since then, and the number, in fact, during COVID has increased, but it hasn't increased as much as researchers were expecting before the crisis. And, and the actual uh, percentage of property changes for, for Italian companies actually remained the same between 2019 and 2020, which suggests uh, that there hasn't been such a big attempt by organized crime uh, to take advantage of the situation as well, at least in, in, in this respect. As far as usury impact, as I talked about before, usury is a practice that is traditionally uh, practiced in Italy. It's a, it's a big part of Italian transactions um, and, and it's something that has been practiced more and more, at least since the 2007-2008 financial crisis. So, of course, you have to put it into perspective. As far as trafficking and smuggling, yes, it has increased. Uh, the number of drugs that increase arriving into Italy, but mainly because of COVID, the, the percentage of drug-related offensive, uh, offenses went down. So at least for the perce perception of people on the ground, they did feel more secure about it. Um, there, there, of course, was a, a big uh, trade volume around fake medication, of course, before COVID. And, um, and there is little organized crime groups uh, involvement in migrant smuggling. There is a missing word there. Uh, but what I mean by it is that uh, what, what is traditionally thought is that uh, organized crime groups in Italy are the ones actually organizing and carrying out the, the migrant smuggling, which is something that doesn't happen. They actually, they only enable it. Uh, they allow the smugglers to operate on their territory. So we have to put that into perspective too. And overall, roughly 50% less migrants arrived in Europe from 2019 into 2020. Finally, society and politics, the way that the, that the bosses were treated in, in prison, the, the way that they behaved around the streets, that was all counterproductive in their way. They tried to, to win the population by giving them food. Uh, but I mean, their behavior as bosses, as mafia bosses and as cr criminals uh, did fire back in the end. And the percep perception of people especially on social media, really, really changed in the end. Just a conclusion, I uh, established that only two out of 10 actually increased and expanded uh, during, during COVID uh, for organized crime groups. And those are the appropriation of public, fund, uh, uh, of public state and EU funds and the exploitation of the online sphere, of course. As for the others, I, I do find that a lot of them are a development of past achievements like usury or... Uh, the sale and production of counterfeits might be, uh, while some might be even like radical changes in shifting businesses or just plainly not as effective as they thought they would be, like their socio-political operations that I just mentioned. Thank you very much for that. Um, I think uh, first off, I'm just going to look at the chat uh, for some questions that have been posed um, by the audience. 
Um, so I have one from Diane. I think this is for Cosimo. Um, she asks, do the European entities collaborate with the National Healthcare Anti-Fraud Association in the US? I cannot tell you with certainty, but uh, one of the things is about also the, the project is the lack of harmonization uh, between um, between all states also outside uh, Europe. So I will be very surprised if that would happen. Um, and uh, I mean, as I was saying, my presentation is very, very much underreported. So, and the reason uh, collaboration between, uh, but also between the same uh, country, in, within the same country. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's been really one of the main issue about theft of medicine, the lack of collaboration. Okay, thank you. Um, I have another question for you actually, Cosimo. So um, Sophie asks, um, could you enlighten us with a case study? Um, yes, so there are uh, several. Um, so the, the one of the, the suppliers, for instance, that usually work with uh, um, basically a client quite, so we have, for instance, rich client uh, in North Africa that, um, that wants to have um, a cancer medicine uh, in Europe. So they... Um, they, they basically um, work with uh, these uh, conniving professional. Um, they commission, uh, they, they ask for this medicine to this uh, uh, conniving professional, this healthcare um, professional, and um, these actors work as brokering. So they, they commission uh, a type of uh, a a specific medicine to um, to uh, thieves in uh, in Europe uh, that uh, steal these medicines, uh, and then uh, and then uh, they ship uh, from in Europe. They usually ship these medicines uh, either through postal services or uh, simply by traveling. So putting these medicines inside uh, their their luggage and then. Um, that's it. It's not very complicated, unfortunately. Uh, and that's on the black market. Then we have also within the legal market with the, so whitewashing, for instance, setting up uh, bogus companies, shell companies, uh, with uh, so creating fake transaction to whitewash um, these uh, these medicines um, and reintroduce them in the in the legal supply chain. Okay. Thank you very much for that. Um... Again, I encourage uh, everyone to place their questions in the chat as we have this discussion. Um, but for the time being, I have a question of my own. Um, there was a, m many of you mentioned a variety of um, crimes uh, that are happening, some things that have become more prominent uh, during COVID, something, some crimes which perhaps increase um, within a crisis situation. Um, and I think it was um, both Stephen um, and King Carl, as well as Lorenzo mentioned cybercrime. And I think this is one of the big questions, especially that came up during the pandemic. Um, since we were all at home spending more time on the internet, um, obviously there's kind of a shift towards more crimes being committed online. I'm curious, um, within your research, do you see that 
um, traditional organized criminal groups and the crimes that they engage in, are they simply moving online or are there now new crimes being actually committed um, online? It's quite a broad question, but I'm hoping um, perhaps Stephen or King Carl, do you have a, a comment on that? So for the Ghanaian case, what has happened was that during the uh, COVID, uh, during the lockdown time, there was the, the need for movement uh, for some of the people to, there was some kind of migration or displacement among the people. And what it meant is that uh, before some of these uh, organizations can meet up, they have to go online. So there was some kind of online engagement at some, to some extent. Uh, but then we have not put up specific data to, 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 to pull up to how percentage of, of that has happened. Uh, but then also for the fact that we saw the move towards uh, the use of uh, cyber-related financial tools, the cryptocurrencies, and then the various online systems, we see that that, that is also something this is, which is uh, uh, possible in that sense. In Ghana, uh, there have been some tra some threats or traits traits of uh, mafia groups, but not higher level uh, radical groups per se, but more mild. But then we see that in the mining communities where they engage in uh, artisanal mining, which we call galaxy, they have been increasing uh, radicalism in those contexts. Uh, uh, but then it is something that we aim to explore uh, further. I see, thank you. I think, Lorenzo, the same question um, for you. Uh, what did you see in your research? Yeah, so thank you for the question. I actually agree with King Carl. I, I, do, uh, I do think that we have to discern between uh, actual cyber crime and, and cyber tools that are used to commit other types of crimes. So I think uh, that's very important. What I mentioned before, for example, the stealing of information in the end is not employed for for a cyber crime in itself, but you you do steal you do use cyber tools to to steal certain information. So of course, it's part of a larger strategy. There are tools right now that allow um, individual individuals, small groups, but also organized criminal groups. Uh, to undertake bigger operations uh, in in the cybersphere in the cybersphere sphere and especially in my opinion it's important the nature of the cyber cybersphere itself we might not see a big increase now i do believe that there's going to be one in the future especially in relation to the lack of accountability uh, the fact that you have a lot of people that are not affiliated with the nation states that can uh, work very well on a computer and can endanger a nation state or its institutions just by using a tool that I'm using and you're using right now. Uh, so you only need knowledge. Uh, it's kind of an asymmetric warfare, uh, but we have to see also where the technological developments bring us in the future. Thank you. I'm not sure if there's any comments on that or follow-up questions. Um, but also another thing that um, got me thinking while I was listening to all of your presentations is um, the way in which um, organized crime groups, specifically um, within the pandemic, um, have also emerged in a sense of fulfilling a social need. 
um, we spoke about, or I think you mentioned that they were handing out of, let's say, PPEs. I know that in Italy, this was uh, the Italian mafia was handing out um, personal protective equipment, sometimes um, food, perhaps, or even uh, money. Um, and I think, uh, King Khan, Stephen, you also mentioned this as well. And I'm wondering, um, this fulfilling of a societal need, how much how difficult does it make it for governments actually uh, to respond to organized crime? Because at the same time, you have these organizations which technically are trying to solidify their legitimacy by helping society. So I'm kind of wondering, uh, does it make it more difficult for governments to uh, counteract um, and how? Yeah, yeah so maybe maybe just some for, for some few comments. Uh, for the Ghanaian case, uh, what happened was that during the COVID, you see a lot of uh, engagement for philanthropism and where the, gov the, the president actually even called for all people, all, all should bring, come on board and then donate for various uh, activities. Actually, there have been a, a, an infectious, infectious disease, disease center that was built within a very short space of time with a very efficient use of resources, with the military helping to build within that period. And what happens is that the money has to be mobilized from all sources. And sometimes these kind of groups are not, they don't operate in silo. They operate with politically exposed people. And then they, they, they connect in such some ways or, or the other with some of these people. So yeah, there are those possibilities that uh, 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 the ability for government to be able to address those issues. Are, and for our contest in Ghana, for example, there are sometimes that because the person who is, who is committing a crime is affiliated with the existing guard, the government in power, some kind of sanction from the IOKO or from the national security may not be done, may not be done. And what, what also happened was that during the COVID, that was when uh, a lot of the national security organizations have to go in, the apparatus have to go in. Pursuing. Some people were moving. When they say don't move, there was uh, 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 you don't have to move, and some people were moving. Some people have to be arrested. But then we saw some cases where there were even some of sometimes forceful and unprofessional behavior from some of these security operators, and that's when some of the uh, 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 bad nuts come in, pretending to be official. So some of those things are key. Uh, the sad part is that our part of the world, the critical sophistication. And the research-oriented security uh, uh, work uh, addressing criminal issues that we have to do, we have not gotten there yet. We talk about cyber security, but in Ghana, you know, we, we have not gotten there yet. Uh, it's, it's sad, but then that is, the, that is the case. And we hope that discussions would get to the level that we'll be able to uh, start addressing some of this. Yeah. yeah, if I can get, uh, I don't know if I can get into that. Um... I, I actually have, because we have something similar in Italy as something like political enablers. Here is called the uh, um, gray zone, zona, uh, zona grigia, which is something like it's, it's a zone in which there's people that are, are in between legality and illegality, which are kind of the intermediaries between politicians or like legitimate businessmen and, and the criminals, you know. Uh, so by all means, not every time the goals of the state and the groups are not aligned. Uh, sometimes they actually do align. In this case, as you can see, of course, it is beneficial also for the state to have their people's belly full uh, or, or to have them wear masks, you know, even if it's the, the organized crime groups that enforce them. 
in in the case of Italy, I still wouldn't think so. I didn't see um, I didn't see any proof for um, organized crime groups total control of territories that they didn't control before. So where they were able to apply these policies are only places where police already had troubles before the pandemic. Um, it didn't change much in that respect. And as I mentioned in my conclusions also, in Italy there was, a, of course, that helped organize crime groups with their legitimacy, helping people out, of course. But on the other hand, uh, you also had the privileges by organized crime groups and especially their members, especially higher ups in the ladder uh, that were able to go home from, from prison, uh, call their families uh, or the restrictions. So a curfew didn't apply to them, for example, and they could do whatever they wanted, uh, which is something that in the end really angered the population. So that was really counterproductive. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, we don't have too much time left, but I was going to reflect a little bit also on uh, Cosimo's presentation that this must be quite a, a struggle when it comes to the illicit medicines market, because at the same time, you have um, these organized crime groups addressing an unmet social need, which, for example, can be access to medicines or getting medicines at a lower price. Um, so that definitely, yeah, I think um, perhaps that's something you've seen as well in your research, Cosimo, if you can comment on that just a minute. Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, the, especially because we are talking about very high expensive uh, drugs. So uh, that it was uh, not, all, not all cases, but I mean, um, it, it took advantage of, of the different prices that different countries have on 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 medicines. For, so for the the parallel trading case uh, was a uh, was about providing uh, medicines at uh, a lower at a lower price for people that couldn't couldn't afford that. So that uh, that was that is often uh, that is often the case. But we also have, however, cases where. Um, as I would said before, rich people want to get the best medicine that they can get, basically. So that's not always the primary case, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. I think the subject is quite interesting, especially because it's a two-sided um, organized crime on the one hand, but then a lot of the role of the government as well and what they can and cannot address. Um, so there's definitely a lot of research and more research to be done. Um, I want to, we have one minute left, so I really want to thank all the participants um, for their presentations. Incredibly insightful. Thank you so much and well done. Thank you for listening to this episode of the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. This talk was just one of 85 from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime. To get access to the rest, head over to oc24.haysummit.com. Thanks for listening.